Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Howdy, Cliff. Hello, Bobo. How are you doing today? Not too shabby. How's it going up there in Portland area? Boring. Going all right. Going all right. Uh, I'm at the museum right now. It's been a tiring week, man. Um, I've been out in the woods uh, two nights already, uh, Monday and Tuesday. Last night, Wednesday, I had a job down at the Malala Library, which was a fun free gig. You know, picked up a couple new sightings and all that sort of stuff and made some contacts down at Malala. And then today I'm back, back at the museum and I'll be out in the woods again tonight. You know, you got you to gotta get out to the woods as much as possible after a sighting. And, of course, I'm talking about a sighting that happened here in Mount uh, Hood National Forest on Sunday. So this is the fourth night of me having uh, obligations, although the wood obligations are, are, are what I prefer. And, of course, the Malala Library talk was a lot of fun as well. But one more night this week. So tonight I'll go out, probably tomorrow night as well, and then I'll start backing off a little bit. But um Probably get out there one more time over the weekend as well. Yeah, I'm going to get out this weekend too. There's been a lot of stuff going on. There's been a lot of fires. Strangely enough, I don't see a huge correlation of fires and sightings like you think you would. Mm -mm. But um, this year, and there's, the fires aren't that bad compared to the other years, but uh, they're, they might be unrelated, but there's been a lot of stuff going on like Hoopa and Willow Creek. And just, I've been hearing, like, heard more reports in the last month than I have in the previous probably year and a half combined. Oh, wow. I think the fire's up by Salyer, isn't it? There's Salyer, and there's up by uh, Happy Camp, and there's there's other various ones that popped up. Oh, my gosh. My gosh. Yeah, the fires are pretty bad, but at least not as bad as the uh, last couple of years. It's, it's been at least in my uh, neck of the woods, thank, thank goodness. I haven't had to evacuate yet, but you know we're not through it yet. We'll see what happens. And as right now, I think the other big news is I'm getting ready for uh, the Michael Freeman event, which is next weekend uh, when we're recording this. I don't know when this will come out, but Michael Freeman, of course, is going to come speak at the museum on August 20th. And uh, I think we're going to record that and, you know, just for prosperity and history purposes. I'm looking forward to uh, looking at what he has. He's also going to bring the original Freeman tape down and we're going to export it deinterlaced. Uh, because now the best version of it was has been deinterlaced, but it was already a digitally interlaced format. We think that if we export it and deinterlace it at the same time, then perhaps we can get a better version of it. So again, just working my butt off on the Freeman things, um, trying to piece together the puzzle that was left, because uh, there's there is uh, um, documentation of a lot of the Freeman stuff, but it's scattered. It's scattered. Like Dr. Meldrum has some in his lab. Um, Vance Orchard has a little bit in his books. Um, Michael Freeman has some stuff. Um, he has some recordings of his father's. Uh, you know, he has his memories as well. And of course, um, Connor and I are working really hard to just piece together the timeline as is visible in the footage itself. 
Um, even today, we found that there's a little bit of a time jump in there. Um, so we're trying to piece together how that fits into the narrative of the timeline. And there's this big mystery. And here, here's a lesson for us all. If you start filming a Sasquatch, do not turn the camera off. Just let it roll, 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 roll. Do not turn it off. Don't, don't, because I don't care if you don't see it anymore. Don't turn the camera off because uh, it's going to help people in the future piece together actually what happened because that's part of the problem we're running into. There's four or five, no, there's eight separate clips um, in the, um, in the Freeman footage. And we're trying to piece that all together right now. So one big mystery and it's never ending. Well, good on you, Cliff. You're doing the Lord's work. I do my best. I, I, I go where I'm called. When the spirit says move, you got to move. Well, I got called overseas and I had to get a hold of one of our contacts. You might remember from episode 13, almost exactly three years ago, one of our first guests in 2019, we're bringing back Beast of Britain, Andy McGrath. Andy, welcome back. Welcome back to Bigfoot and Beyond. You're one of the very few, but in growing in number that have been on our show twice. So congratulations. We must really, really love and admire you. You're a lucky person there. And welcome back. And now we're lucky people because uh, because you're back with us. So welcome back. Yeah, hi, Andy. Hi, guys. I know I have to say in pure British fashion at this point and in self-deprecation and, and the uh, time on a tradition of self-deprecation that I don't know why you'd have me on twice, but I'm I'm grateful for the mistake that you've made, and I'm happy to be here. Because <laughs> you had a new book come out. Yes. Yeah, you have a new publication that we're. Well, I've been. I don't have it yet. I, I wish I did, but um, I wish I would have like had a chance to peruse it a bit. But I understand you have a new publication after your second book, or is it more than your second book? No, it, it's it's the second book because the first book I, I just re- recently, uh, just before Christmas last year, released the the third version or the the final version of it. I went through it again and republished it, new cover and, and new stories, and actually took about 130 pages out and put about 150 in, so it's longer than the previous two versions, and yet there's quite a lot of new, new material in it. It's quite different. But then I started uh, to write a new series called Beasts of the World, and I wanted to cover all cryptids, all around the world and get them into this one book. And uh, I I signed a, a publishing deal with um, Doug Highcheck and Alex Highcheck, his son, with Hangar One Publishing, who republished Beasts of Britain for me and said, well, look, I want to do this big Beast of the World book. And um, we'd already spoken about it for a TV series, which we're also pitching, you know, on the, on the choir to the background. And I started writing it. And I ended up with, uh, I think it was nearly 600 pages of research material. I thought, well, once I put this together, you know, for all cryptids all around the world, it's going to be about a 1,500-page book. Nobody's going to buy that and read it all at once. It's ridiculous. So I split it into seven volumes. And the first one is called Beast of the World, Hairy Humanoids. Looking at hairy, man-like, or humanoid-like, shapes and forms around the world. Everything from... You know, giant man apes to wild men to relic apes like the the yeti, littlefoots, dogmen, monkey monsters, and and so on and so forth. And and looking at sort of I suppose general forms of these creatures and trying to get a categorization in different parts of the world and give people a an overview of what we might be looking at. How much did you find where they reported quadrupedal and bipedal? Or, or some of them? I mean, I know some are reported as just bipedal and some are reported as being both did you kind of get a percentage ratio of that 
No, I, I don't really have a, a percentage of it. I did notice that that uh, some of the the more relic ape type creatures, like the Yeti, is often uh, is often depicted as being quadrupedal as well. There's some some versions of that. I also noticed there are a lot of Yowie reports where there's quadrupedal um, behaviors exhibited, both bipedal and quadrupedal behavior. But it seems to be a type of stalking. A, a kind of a stalking technique that they use. At least those people that I reported on the book that, that talk about the Yowie doing that notice the creature sneaking up on them. It appears to be that way, or at least trying to get out of sight. Because you, you didn't come across any Alma sightings where they were quadrupedal ever, have you? No, I haven't actually. Now, I I, I did look at the Almas. I, I looked more at the Almasti. I was very interested in the the work of uh, Mary Jean Kaufman, because of course you know a great hero of of wild man uh, research, and there were some fantastic sightings that she had that that really displayed more human like characteristics. And there were within those sightings there were there were so many uh, amongst the people in the Caucasus region there were so many relationship like interactions between the local people. And these Almasti and the, you know, the local people tended to to view them almost as a people in a way, uh, and that was very interesting. But I've, I've never heard of them going about quadrupedally. What about the other species? Uh, certainly, uh, um, maybe Yetis or something like that, or some of the the, the like Littlefoots or anything like that. Yetis, I, I've heard of Yetis uh, definitely going about on all fours. I mean, that seems to be that seems to be a feature. Of of that particular hairy humanoid, if you like, with a little foot, maybe not so much. I, I mean, you must have heard of some orang pendek sightings, but that's occasionally a, a part of it. I I have heard of one or two sightings with the with the yerin, with the smaller version in China, where it seems to to occasionally go about on all fours. But again, it doesn't seem to be a very common feature. The yeti, yes. Um, Perhaps certain types of Yowie interactions as well, but in my experience, it wasn't it wasn't a very common feature. Now, did you get out into the brush? Did you actually get put could put boots on the ground in some of these countries where you're doing the investigations? And and if not, um, how did you gather information for the book? I didn't. I didn't. And that's actually that's the premise of the TV series that we're trying to pitch at the moment. The book is almost the precursor to the locations. And we, we definitely want to do all of those locations and, and get boots on the ground. I I basically scoured my library. I bought books. I looked at sort of wonderful, you know, they stood upon the, the wonderful shoulders of those giants. Like we mentioned, people like Marie-Jean Kaufman, people like Geordie uh, Magrin and, and others, and really scoured, scoured everything that they'd ever written. I tried to come to conclusions about that and the way that the book is, is set up actually it's very easy to dip in and out so we have sections that looks at uh, an overview of the creature's uh, area in which it lives then its name you know what are the the colloquial versions of its name what do they mean is there any correlation between these characteristics in each different region it's monstrous measurements terrifying tracks the beastly behaviors and its its diet and uh, habitat and things like that, and every single creature that's represented in the book is examined through these through these prisms of, uh, I suppose, uh, identifying uh, monikers. And 
I guess it's sort of an overview, really. It's an overview of each one of these creatures based upon those great men and women who researched it in the past. What's your best guess on how many different species uh, your book deals with? Again, this is this is I think even in the in the intro to the book, I'm I'm saying this is still a very generalized collection. Now I've split it into, and I've based some of this upon work by people like Jeff Meldrum and others, and and Lauren Coleman and and all. So there's the man apes, of course. That's something we're all very familiar with. It's massively built, hair covered, upright bipedal hominid, uh, seven to nine feet tall, large, wide, flat feet, similar to humans, without an arch, and with the um, exhibiting the the midfoot flexibility that you always talk about. Commonly known as the midtarsal ridge. Then there's the wild man type that we talk about, and there's, there's various forms of that, caveman-like or Neanderthal-like, uh, largely hair-covered with this differentiated hair that seems to be different to that on the body. Uh, feet are human-like in appearance, broad and arched, and you know, closely matching fossilized tracks in some cases uh, that are attributed to um, the Neanderthal. And we're looking at relics or relic apes, if you will, like the Yeti, uh, standing five and a half to seven feet tall, stocky, like, uh, as opposed to the man apes and the wild men, in my opinion, occupying a position that's more closer to, to true apes. And then we come to that point where they seem to be both bipedal and, and quadrupedal, uh, leaving those tracks, which we all know from the famous Shipton track, which I understand is very disputed, but showing a, a divergent medial toe. Uh, I also talk about little foots. I think there are two types of, uh, of little foot, or at least there seems to be a, a differentiation between something that looks like a small upright ape and another creature that looks more like a proto-pygmy. So um, an example of that would be perhaps the difference between the orang pendic of Sumatra and the evogogo of, of Flores. And there's another section in the book talks about monkey monsters and it's a, a little bit of a pusher but you know i think these platerines and catarines could be massively outsized monkeys you know like the isnachi or the salvaje um in, in south america and then we stray to dogman territory my theory on that not one of my own but something i think has been popular for a while and makes sense to me is that perhaps the dogmen or werewolves in our countries are examples of of these monkey monsters, you know, perhaps now functionally extinct in places like Europe and North America, and yet related somehow to these large upright monkeys in, in Asia and South America. So you're lumping the dogmen in with monkeys um, because they have a tail or... No, it's not that. I think some of the, the, the appearance, perhaps something that's a bit more baboon-like in appearance, something that, that's upright, uh, maybe something that has ears, you know, with the, the, the front limbs having the, that sort of almost suspended position. Could this, could this creature, in fact, be an example of that? And would, would, have our, would our ancient ancestors in Europe and, and North America, would they have perceived the things that they saw, were they, were they giant monkeys of some kind, to be a, a sort of upright wolf? Yeah, it's an interesting perspective I hadn't really thought about before. Um, I'll need two witnesses that I really trust and totally believe about the dogmen. 
Um, and I believe both of them said they had pretty canine-like ears, kind of a German shepherd-like ears. But um, I can see the prognathism. I can see the prognathism of a baboon or something being confused as the muzzle for a dog. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that thing's totally paranormal, personally. Well, it certainly isn't normal. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's definitely not normal. And it bothered me for such a long time, this appearance of the werewolf, because it has animal-like characteristics behaves in an animal-like way, just like Bigfoot does. And essentially, it presents as an animal. And yet, I've always wondered if, you know, when we can't figure out what something is or why it should be there, especially like an upright wolf, where would we find that in the fossil record? How could we justify it? We couldn't. And yet, could it be something else? And and maybe that's our difficulty. We lump things we cannot explain into the, the paranormal. Yeah, and then I think humans have a tendency to um, look for paranormal explanations um, for perfectly normal things as well. I think a lot of the you research. Think a dogman is perfectly normal. <laughs> no, I, well, I I do think that I like people. Uh, some of the older research for, researchers, for example, either get bored of the flesh and blood Bigfoot thing or come to this conclusion: is like, well, if these things were just flesh and blood, I would have seen one by now, and um, and therefore it has to be paranormal. It's our ego. I think, I mean, I think it possibly is all right. I'm not ruling out the paranormal altogether, but I think hum- there's something in humankind that says, I did everything I could. It's like when you've been at Loch Ness, like some of these guys for f- five decades, 50 years, and you had a sighting maybe at the beginning, you've never seen it again since. And you're looking at this water every single day. You're walking through the same, if you're looking for Bigfoot, the same paths where people have seen things every day and you see nothing. And you think it, it must be paranormal because I didn't find it. And I wonder if that's a sort of, you know, it's a sort of a, a massage for the ego. I, I didn't find it because it's not, it's not corporeal. You know, it's this portal jumping creature of some kind. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a sighting of the Cardan. Um, so it's the one with entomologist George Brooks from 1953 and the physician George Moore. And they're in the Gusson kind of pass in Nepal on route to Kathmandu. And um, more, you know, at the time he's he's after this encounter, he's assumed that he's he's seen the the, the yeti, and he recounts this harrowing experience in an article called "I Met the Abominable uh, Abominable Snowman" in the the May '57 issue of Sportafield. And it describes a situation with himself and and his partner Brooks being assailed by these animals after becoming separate from their porters um, in the pass, and that the porters were far back along the trail. And, um, you know, he says this, these creatures were led by a large male who announced his presence with a raucous roar, accompanied by this angry chattering of the group. So the sighting runs, he says, a hideous face, and this is summarized, by the way, thrust apart the wildly thrashing leaves and gaped at us. It was a face that seemed to extend from ear to ear, and long, yellowish teeth were chattering. But those eyes, beady yellow eyes, that stared at us with obvious demoniacal cunning and anger, that face... A hand pushed through the leaves and then a quick movement and a shoulder as the creature emerged through the dark leaves. We strained to make out his form. The creature was about five foot tall, half crouching on two thin hairy legs, leering at us in undisguised fury. Claws and hands seemed dark, perhaps black, while his bedraggled hairy body was grey and thin. It shuffled along with a stoop the way a Neolithic caveman might have walked. Well built and sinewy, it could prove to be the most formidable opponent. His teeth bared, snarled like an animal, two long fangs protruded from its upper lip. 
Suddenly, a sharp, flicking movement behind it caught our eyes, a tail. Other figures were approaching now from several directions. We could make out six or seven of them through the mist. And one appeared to be carrying a baby around its neck. Um, now, you know, the, the sighting goes on and eventually you know, they, they fire their guns and their porters come running up and the, the creatures flee after two or three attempted assaults. But this is a monkey, he describes. It has a tail. It's five to six feet tall. And there's a group of them lit by a big male that's going to attack them. And it's it's that thin, sinewy, you know, long fanged appearance that, that just grabbed me. And I thought, where would ancient peoples in our part of the world here in Europe, would, would that have been a, a werewolf to them? Or would it have been this, you know, this giant monkey? Who knows? I think there's something in it. Maybe it's a, a far out theory, but um, I, I, some, for some reason it grabs me. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. Is the book published yet? Is it out? It is. Not only is it out, uh, it's available on all of the main platforms. It's also There is also now an audiobook of, of the book, uh, narrated by Jonathan Rufus Welsh, who narrated Beasts of Britain as well. It's very easy listening. He's got a, a lovely voice and, and cadence. And uh, if, like me, you, you know, you're always on the move and you don't have time or even space on the London Underground to hold a book up in front of your face, it's um, you know, a nice excuse to just in your way through a book. I'm still not buying the monkey thing for Dogman. I've talked to several people that I believe and I've listened to hundreds and hundreds of reports and what we got going on over here, there's no way it's a monkey. It would be strange to have a monkey in North America out of the tropics there, but it'd be strange. Um, but how much stranger is that than a bipedal wolf? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it true, but uh, what can I say? In the book, I've entertained lots of different theories, not necessarily ones I ascribe to or believe in, but just common theories about what these these things might be. And there's a link. The the monkey monster section and the dogman section are still separate. But there is a link within the theory of what they might be between the both, uh, both chapters. So what's another one of the cryptids that you look into besides the hairy hominoids? Uh, in the other books, um, we are looking at the next book, uh, volume two, is Water Monsters. So we're looking at everything there from the classics like Nessie and, and Champ and Ogopogo to giant octopus and uh, krakens and um, huge seals like or, or possible uh, seal-like cryptids like the Doaku or the, the, the Bunyip and so on and so forth, even sort of strayed into the merman or the mermaid sort of theory of things, you know, to try to figure out some of that and matched in with strange Sirenians, you know, like the Stella Sea Cow and, and other things like that. Each chapter of the book, sorry, each volume of the book actually has a, you know, a really, really nice deep dive into a an area of cryptozoology, you know, an umbrella, I guess, so 
with water monsters, that's a nice uh, wide bracket in which you can fit even more categories than something like hairy humanoids. There are other volumes as well. We look at strange, uh, mysterious reptiles, uh, you know, mysterious snakes and crocodiles and lizards, um, amazing amphibians, you know, beastly bugs, all kinds of different things, monstrous megafauna, things with wings. It just goes on and on and on. Each book is about 350 to 370 pages. The first one is 375. And it's just packed, packed, packed full of information. Uh, again, you know, research from the best out there, paraphrased and uh, annotated, but um, presenting, hopefully, a nice summary of all of that great research that's been done into these different cryptids over the years. And especially... Looking at some of the cryptids, you know, we sort of Bigfoot fans or late Wanta fans never stray, stray uh, into. Well, it sounds like a distillation or like a compilation or a um, conglomerate of everybody else's research, but made accessible. So they didn't have to do the footwork of digging through all these other sources. They can go to yours where all of this information that has been kind of spread out through space and time has, is, is, is compiled in a concentrated way for people who are interested in general cryptozoology. Absolutely. And yeah, I would say there, was, there are some deep dive aspects, but generally speaking, I'm trying to present an overview uh, most definitely the, the, the deep dive and all of my heroes of cryptozoology would appear in there um, in some form or another. Of course, the ideas that I have a, a, and all of our ideas are based upon what has gone before. And um, and in that case, you know, I, I'm very thankful for those people because without them, how would we even know what we know? Uh, and I hope that people will read those books and think, well, okay, you know, this is this is a great summary of that cryptid or this cryptid that I've never heard of before. I knew something of, but I never had it really, as you say, summarized in that way into these nice component parts. And uh, oh, anyway, it's a, you know, it's a big mission. If I'm, I'm, I'm one book in and I'm on the, the second one. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think the first one, it was, I was writing eight to 10 hours a day for about four months and uh, got that done. And, Second one's taken slightly longer. Should be done around twenty thirty with the whole volume. You could buy it at your funeral or something. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a that's a pretty ambitious project. It's really vicious, and as per usual, I, I'm I'm just not smart enough to 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 see that it's going to cost me um, a lot in time and effort. But I'm hoping that people read it and get familiar with that. You know, those great cryptic creatures around the world. I've included a lot of very rare examples, some classics as well, but a lot of rare examples of some of the hairy humanoids about that people don't often hear about. For example, I've completely omitted uh, the North American Sasquatch because I think it's just too big a subject to go into a small book like that. That needs a book of its own. I agree. Yeah, I think that's a genre in itself. Did you contact people in these other countries, like witnesses yourself, or did you just go off all previous reports and stuff, or did you actually reach out? No, some of it, some of it is direct witness reports, and others are, are just research. Now, um, uh, it sounds like you have a, a decent chunk of the book uh, uh, dedicated to South America. 
and so little work has been done down there. I mean, people have heard of the Mapinguari, you know, and there's debate whether that's a Sasquatch or a giant sloth of some sort. Maybe it's both, and the same word is applied to both. But outside of Brazil, we hear almost nothing about hairy hominoids. But certainly, if they're in Brazil, there's nothing stopping them from going anywhere else. Um, have you uncovered a lot of work um, from South America, and who were your primary sources? Well, you know, actually... I don't, apart from things like the Iznachi and Salvaje, which would would really, I suppose, be in the giant monkey or the monkey monster category, they, I didn't really dive that deep into South America at all. I did look at the Ukamar, which yeah, essentially, I think, had come to the conclusion of it being probably a bear. Um, I mean, Ukamari, I think, is, is one of the words that they use in that part of the world uh, near Argentina for, for bear anyway. Um, but in the areas in which the Yukamar was sighted, which is again not for some time, bears are rare. So you know, who knows even if um, if they would have classified that as as a bear or as a as a large hairy humanoid of some kind. So there was a story of I think in 1957 there was a Brazilian newspaper called the Ultimora de Rio de Janeiro. And they started reporting that the, the villages of uh, Tolagrande were terrorized by eerie calls emanating from the mountains. And um, the local villages, they attributed to this creature called the uh, Ukamar, which is supposed to have this mournful or ululating call. Um, I think it's also known as a uh, Sachoi in that area. The trouble is that the name also means bear. You know, and most of the interpretations of of the, the legendary beast seem to be centered around its bear-like characteristics. Now, you know, we all know that in certain parts of the world, especially in archaic cultures, sometimes some names, some terms are catch-all terms for large animals of a certain type. It doesn't necessarily have to be a bear, but according to local folklore, it, it's supposed to be a hair-covered bipedal half-man, half-bear like a wild, ugly humanoid form, five to seven feet tall, with sharp teeth, small eyes and a long beard with a narrow forehead, hands and legs and feet with opposed toes, which I know that that comes up quite a lot, um, tracks about 17 inches in length, said in some cases to show an opposable toe. Um, now, these calls, this uh-hoo, uh-hoo sort of calls and that seems to make at night and this ululating call, I don't really think that's that's possible for a bear as well. And of course, local folklore, as in many other uh, hairy humanoid legends, talks of the creature abducting women for breeding, which is a, you know we all know this is a you know this is a wild man like wild man like um, aspect to it. Um, there was a sighting, as I say, in 1958. There was a, a group camping in Rengo in the Cordilleras province of Santiago in uh, Chile who claimed to encounter a large ape man. Um, the, the group was so terrified by the strange beast that they called the police, who, who later arrived and took statements from the witnesses. And according to them, it was a enormous man covered in hair. And I, I, you know, I think that's, that's something significant. I met a couple that ran a fly fishing outfit down in Patagonia in southern Chile. They were telling me that they said there's no one down. I mean, like it's so remote and so and it's just, you know, wide open, beautiful, big mountains, lakes, rivers, tons of like anything a Bigfoot would need. And he said, Oh yeah, they got them down there, but 
there's no one there to report them. And, and that's the language barrier as well, Bobo. I think in many cases, when looking to some of these sightings, you know, some of the articles are only in Spanish and other things, even in, in local languages. I, I think we, as English-speaking people, don't we often don't realize how dominant the English language is worldwide, to the point of if you're not producing media in English, you know, it it doesn't it doesn't spread, essentially. I just wonder how many local reports there might be in some of these areas that that, that never make it out of there. Well, the same goes for uh, the United States as well. I mean, I, I'm 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 okay at Spanish, but I know I'm not fluent. Um, I'm smart enough to be able to the wiggle my sentences and word choices around into my you know my my third grade Spanish vocabulary when I am speaking Spanish. Um, but I've often thought that uh, a, a fluent Spanish speaker can make some really great contributions to the Bigfoot subject, not only by just by looking into uh, reports and rumors and stories and legends in South and Central America, but also um, in our own backyard, like migrant workers throughout the Central Valley in California or pushed up against the foothills. That's an untapped resource um, of possible Sasquatch reports, brush pickers and whatnot. I mean, that was happening out in the Crazy Hills, which is adjacent to Skookum Meadows um, back when the days of the Skookum cast. Um, I believe one of the reports that brought them there was actually by migrant brush pickers. They're picking bear grass is what they were doing and because uh, it's often used in the floral industry for flower arrangements. Um, and they ran into the Sasquatch out there. But again, I mean, they're Spanish speakers. They don't speak English, so their story doesn't get out. It's just rumors and stuff. There's a couple guys doing that now, Cliff. Who? Um, I forget the guys. There's a guy in Texas and a guy in Southern California. Well, fantastic. I would I would be, be thrilled to read some of their work um, because certainly these people are seeing Sasquatches. And if they're not speaking English, then the English-speaking researchers aren't hearing about it. So we need more Spanish-speaking researchers out there to uh, get those reports and record them. That's true. And that's where all the attention is. The, all, all of the attention is in that in the English-speaking world, largely centered around the United States as, you know, the, I suppose, the most prolific center of that, that English-speaking world. And yeah, and the, in looking at the book as well, I mean, looking, when the, the, um, when the, the narrator for the audio book was, was going through all of the different sightings, and of course there's, you know, there's the what's in the name section for every creature where all the different names are, are listed, all the different iterations of it. I was getting these constant calls and emails from him. How do you pronounce, you know, uh, Jez Turmak or, you know, Jomoka or whatever it was on that particular day. How do you pronounce this? How do you pronounce that? Of course, sometimes you don't know. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. It seems to be anyway. In all continents of the world, that's, except Antarctica, there seems to be some wild man, some hairy humanoid-like legend. And that, to me, it's fascinating. That's why I wanted to sort of condense those stories into this book. I mean, even even with a 370-page book, it's just a glimpse. There were so many possibilities to look into when I was researching it, and it's just a, a really glimpse. just a glimpse of, of the the phenomenon. It's crazy all the stuff out there. I mean, like the Icelandic ones and the Nordic ones. Like, but I think a lot of those you can just write off like real easily. Like when it's like a reptilian type thing living in Iceland. Like those kind of ones, I just kind of write those off. You mean like a like troll like reports or um, no, like when it's like a like an like an amphibian like a reptile. Oh yeah, yeah, no, actually, 
Well, I mean, um, what was the, the famous sighting? I think it's in the book here with the skateboard lizard man, right? I mean, that has a lot of strange twists and turns to it. You know, even with the primary witness, who I think some years later was killed in some drug deal gone bad or by some local drug dealers or something, wasn't he? You know, there's so much weirdness surrounding how that original story came out and became public, you know, and all of these bits of damage that happened to these cars around that area. It's really hard to know what went on, save to, you know, suffice to say that had he really made up this story about being attacked by a lizard man to get out of some kind of trouble, it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I've heard of tall stories. It's not your first point of call that, you know, if you're in trouble with the police or you've been damaging cars locally, he should claim that you were chased out of the swamps by some huge lizard man. It's a strange thing. But it's similar, similarly with these, um, these dogman and werewolf reports, if you like, but well, you know, these reptilian reports, there's a whole section of these all over the world as well. Well, when you say reptilian, what do you mean by that? Can you describe what the people are seeing? Well, I mean, it, this is different. I think this is a weird crossover genre because there's the, there's the alien-like or demonic-like, whatever people want to describe it as, humanoid, intelligent reptilians involved in experimentation and kidnappings and things like that. And that side of things, I'm quite sketchy about. I stay away from it because I'm trying to find possible, you know, um, cryptic creatures. And then I think there's these reports like that scaffold lizard man, which or the the kappa, for example, in Japan, that seem to have reptilian characteristics in some way either they they have scales or they have reptilian features and and live in swamp-like environments and you have to wonder you know what what are people really seeing even with the kappa being really in japan really wrapped up in very local religious practice and folklore you know and there are sort of shrines and devotions to the to this effigy all over the place and all kinds of uh, superstitions and uh, luck wrapped up in, you know, in in, um, in the creature. You know, it's hard to really pull it apart from any reality. And yet, some people do still claim to have flesh and blood sightings of the creature. And what is it? Well, that's an interesting uh, thing you brought up. Is that since um, wherever there are physical uh, biological creatures that are unusual, the kinds that you, your book series will be looking into, there's always, always uh, um, stories and folklore and mythology wrapped around them. Um, do you explore those sort of things as well, and uh, perhaps uh, and come to conclusions about the sources of those more fantastical um, attributes that many of these animals are ascribed? Yes, yes. I mean, in the, there's a beastly theory section for every every single creature. So, um, so it's for instance in the section in the book about the the kappa in the beastly theory section, there's um, a theory called a menagerie of mer beings. You know, so it says any casual observer of kappa law will observe that there not only appear to be several animals amalgamated into the most common manifestations of the kappa. There are also several types of Kappa in Japanese law that vary in physical form and behavior. And this, um, you know, this has led to many different representations of the, of the creature. And in their myth and legends, you know, their religion, their superstition and their folklore, it's ingrained into the very Japanese being. 
So the extraction effect from fiction is nearly impossible to affect. And I know you guys experience that sometimes with First Nations cultures in um, in North America as well. Um, you know, but within that mythology, we can see traces of these cautionary tales similar to the, the Kelpie legends of the ancient Scots or the, the Naki of the ancient Finns, which are used to warn children about the dangers of water and and um, you know, even what we see in Japan, even this modern era, is, is something similar. There's signs featuring cappers pulling children underwaters where there is deep water to warn the children away from these dangerous bodies of water. So, you know, I ask in the book, you know, could, could things like the kappa and other creatures, these myth, mythological sides of them, could they be nothing more than imaginary bogeymen uh, to, to ward away and wary children from the water's edge or to keep them out of the forest where there are dangerous animals, in fact, you know, and um, is, is that a possibility? I think in many cases, it really could be. But even in North America, uh, I know a Skokomish gentleman, for example, um, Skokomish, uh, the um, indigenous guy, and he says there's a place up there on the peninsula that um, they call, uh, I think it was the Skookum Hole, if I remember right. No, no, that's that's a fishing spot where they go. But um, there's another spot uh, where, where a tributary, or I'm sorry, a river flows out into the bay. And um, I guess there's a lot of drownings there. And um, uh, apparently Sasquatches are supposedly responsible for pulling people under and drowning them there when um, that sounds like what you're saying here it's just like well that's, a, that's probably a warning story to stay away from this particular place because of currents or or something like that and um they just kind of put the boogeyman idea there um without i'm assuming they have not seen sasquatches pulling people under to drown them um but it's just kind of a ascribed mythology of that particular uh, outlet and you know who knows how many times some form of real creature is is related to that thing that happens. I often wondered if when um, children are lost in tragic circumstances, like a drowning or maybe taken by a wild animal in the woods, if our ancient forebears had some sort of coping mechanism, you know, some sort of supernatural beast or animal that would um, defy the laws of, of reality and logic. So therefore they could not have stopped it. They could not have helped save their child and it almost absolves the parent or the family from the tragedy that's happened i wonder wonder i wonder about that a lot actually you know and of course then there's the deity aspect of it where you ascribe a deity to the the creature as well which happens with the kappa it's it is worshipped in a way or at least um it's it's um it's the subject of devotions and uh, gifts uh, throughout Japan, and there's shrines all over the place to it, this Momanian deity, and yet it's still this warning against the, you know, the dangers of water or, or the, the wild for, for children as well. So you've got this tragic circumstance, then you've got the coping mechanism above it of saying, I couldn't have done anything to save my child, and then the deity aspect on top, which says, and also this creature is this, this, this untouchable deity, part of nature that we... You know, we, we can do nothing about we must just accept stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages did you come across any where there's official like acknowledgement or recognition from government entities or officials like for instance we were in china that got that national park dedicated to the year and 
Well, that I was just about to mention the Yerin actually, because of course they've had some, you know, they've had some really great scientists over there looking to that for um, a long time. Is, is what's the chap's name? Is it Zhu Guzhang? Is that his name? Or Guzhang? How do you pronounce that? Sounds um, good to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying. I'm not great with those those pronunciations. Um, there were pieces here and there. I remember there was some royal involvement in one of the Orang Dalam sightings. I think Lauren Coleman uh, reported on some years ago, some of the footprints and the sightings that were found in that part of the world. Um, yeah, occasionally there are, you know. Um, I, none come to mind off the top of my head. I think what's most important about this this area of research, this genre, is is actually, especially since some of the sightings are very, very old, is the correlation across continents and across time, uh, especially in in description and behavior of the creatures. And that's something I've just tried to focus on a lot. Some of the names in each language as well have very similar meanings, you know, like hairy man or mountain man or snowman and things like that. It seems to, or wild man, of course, is a very common one, but it seems to have a, a, a blanket, uh, there seems to be a blanket behavior or, or appearance of this creature that's spread out throughout these continents that goes too far back for any Monday sort of bigfooting popularism to, to have affected. And, and that's one of the things I tried to, to focus on here. There are some government links from, from time to time, but they're not really prominently featured in this book. What's the most, like, so there's, the Sasquatch type things, you got your lycanthorps like dogman, wolf, werewolves, you got your river serpents, sea monster type things. Do you see uh, those unidentified flying humanoids, whatever you call them? That, that I, that's a bit I haven't looked into very much yet. Boba Tuna said that's in book three or four. I think I've laid out some of the some of the sightings. Um, in that book, things with wings. There, there are some flying humanoids. Largely, I've, I've tried to focus on, and I like fly, flying creatures. So, for example, in Britain, there was a whole rash of pterodactyl-like sightings, you know, from the 80s onwards, going right up to the, the um, I think, 2014 or 15, uh, where there were some sightings in uh, Shropshire, even, of a lady who swore and that she saw two pterodactyl, pterodactyls flying over her house uh, out of a bird reserve and they weren't herons and they weren't storks and she was absolutely convinced. Um, we do have other humanoid sightings here in the UK and I'm going to focus on that one because that's that's something I've, I've dealt with directly of something called the Owlman which you've obviously heard of, the Owlman of Morning in Cornwall but there's also an Owlman of Haverford West and several areas around the country that have similar bipedal owl-like creatures or man-like creatures with bat-like wings that, that appear to take off from a standing position uh, from the ground, which are very, you know, very, very curious. And again, the witnesses are, are certain, absolutely certain that they've seen what they've seen. Um, let me just look at this one here. Okay, the Owlman of Morning, that was in the 1970s, first witnessed by two girls who saw what they claimed to be a bird man. Hovering over the tower of Morning Old Church in Cornwall, um, for five to six feet tall, bipedal, grey brown owl with a black mouth and pincer like claws with a wingspan 10 feet across. Seen again in Haverford West. Now, Cornwall is in the lower southwest peninsula 
of England Hatfield West is on the very uh, southwest of Wales which is actually just above the Cornwall Peninsula separated by a by some by the sea and that was seen in the 1960s by a crew member of an emergent Navy ship uh, running through Thomas St Thomas Churchyard Churchyard again and have the West at night and a, I think it was again seen by a young couple in 2013 who claimed that they encountered a large feather covered covered man or creature that descended from one of the trees and ran through St Thomas Churchyard uh, chasing them essentially out of the out of the yard and there's tons of other things there's the Batman of Sight Hill Cemetery in, in Glasgow who was uh, who surprised the driver for 30 a.m. one morning coming out of the cemetery gates, Sight Hill Cemetery gates, and ran, kept pace with his car, in fact, up to 40 miles per hour before he cornered it in front of a wall, drove after it, and uh, saw the creature immediately, vertically jump up into the air and clear a 20-foot fence in a single movement. Um, and it goes on. There's the Bat Beast of Kent. There's there's uh, uh, pterosaur-like sightings and and on and on and on. Would you put the, um, what is it, the Mothman under that same umbrella of sort of owl, bipedal, bird, critter things? There is a correlation, and that is, uh, in some of the sightings, the Owlman is said to have red glowing eyes, like the Mothman. And the head is also said to be quite low down into the shoulders, which was always my assumption with the Mothman. Not that it was headless, but that the head was almost positioned, I suppose. Uh, between the shoulders without any neck being visible. Uh, yeah, I think it, it could be, it could be a similar creature. Who knows? Now, what, what are your, what's your thought on a biological niche for these sort of critters like that? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's where I always run into problems with Dogman or, or Mothman or any of these things. I had a theory for a long time that the Almad of Morning, at least the original sighting made by the two girls, Nine and twelve could have been an eagle owl, a Eurasian eagle owl, which can be about four and a half feet tall, standing. I've seen them. They do occasionally come to, to the UK. There are a few nesting pairs now, and they are. They can be quite aggressive, especially if you have dogs, and they're huge. You know, it's an owl that's four feet tall. It's a huge creature. Um, that that's sort of my opinion on it. Uh, that original sighting as well also has a caveat to it. So um, Tony Doc Shields, you might be aware of him, the famous wizard of the West who used to try to conjure Loch Ness in the 1970s. And he was sort of a traveling wizard that collected these stories. And there's, I don't know if you've ever seen the Muppet photo of Loch Ness, sort of this green neck with a Muppet-like face coming out of the water. That was his photo. The Morgauer photo in Cornwall is allegedly attributed to him as well. And he was one of the reportees of this original sighting. And there's, wherever he goes, there seems to be some sort of activity. So there's, there's that basis again. And this comes up again, time and time in cryptozoology. As we know, something becomes law, then it becomes fact. And some of the ideas that we could be talking about here today, you must have experienced it with finding Bigfoot. Something you throw out there as an idea becomes a foundational base for cryptozoology for fans and people from that point. They base a theory upon that, right? And I wonder if that's the same thing with things like the Owlman. You know, the stories become um, script, in a way, scripture, 
and now we base all the other sightings upon that validity. Yeah, I'm finding that more and more the deeper I dig into specific cases of my own interest um, is I hear these rumors about things, and it turns out these rumors are absolutely unfounded and untrue, but everyone takes them as scripture. So I am personally at this point kind of stepping back five or ten feet and um, looking very closely at all of my assumptions about Sasquatches in particular. Um, and I'm really starting to question what what the the general populace believes, the things that I've always taken as, well, yeah, of course it's like that because it's always been like that. And it turned, you know, the, the things that I've been looking into are just so so incorrect, these rumors and assumptions that I've been basing some of my things off of. And I know that because I've gone to locations and seen it for myself, and I know these things are incorrect. And I'm, so now I'm starting to question everything, everything. Like, oh, are they solitary? No, I don't think they are anymore. Not a tiny bit. Um, are they the super and hyper intelligent? I kind of don't think so. I don't <laughs> think so. They're not as smart as people say they are because everybody else is following the, the, the rumors and the, the common knowledge, so to speak, and realize, and people don't realize that the common knowledge should be questioned. Everything should be questioned, in, in, including one's own assumptions. And that's what I'm trying to do now at this point in my, in my existence is question my own assumptions about these critters and see if, if my own experiences or the, the evidence, the objective evidence that has come back supports that claim, or is this just another rumor? Because we, whether we realize it or not, as cryptozoologists or Bigfooters, we are inventing our own mythology about these animals, um, Sasquatches in particular, because that's my gig. Um, we're inventing our own mythology and it is no more accurate than any other culture's mythology, and it should be questioned. This is this is very interesting, Cliff, that you should mention that. And in one way, it fills me full of hope, because as a longtime advocate, to be questioning yourself, and I went through a whole period of this in 2019 onwards, a slight meltdown, where I sort of realized that this thing was a lot of foundational truths that I had accepted, through no fault of the people who put them forward, by the way, had been proposed normally as theories or had been suggested as as ideas. And because of the um, the presence of the those giants of research that had suggested them, like Hoovelmans and other people, I just accepted them as foundational fact and built upon them. And obviously, built sometimes built erroneous theories on top of those shaky foundations, which were never meant to be foundations anyway. And um, then, of course, there's the interaction we have in the community sometimes. I'd found out that I'd sprung so many lies in some research circles in the community that I was like, wow, I'm really sort of shook here, you know, um, because a lot of what we also trust within Bigfooting and other forms of cryptozoology is based upon the credibility and character of key researchers. And there were some some issues here at home where, some things were exposed. I was like, okay, wow, that caught me by surprise. I'm pretty good at sniffing out a lie. Um, and once or twice, I've been really caught. And I know we all have at certain points. But that makes you question things. And of course, that shouldn't shake everything for you, but it should at least, um, you know, make you dig down a bit deeper. Now, like when somebody gives me a sighting, I'm always on the phone to Interpol. You know, I'm like, hey, <laughs> I've got this person. What do you know about them? And that's the sort of deep dive I'm doing. I'm looking at the, the person behind everything I can find out about them even. Not to be mean, but just, you know, extraordinary claims, etc. You know, 
that's where I am. But it makes it more fun. And this book was meant to really, that's why this book was a little more ambiguous. These are all the key bits of research out there about these but these different creatures. And it's based not upon one or two researchers, but many manifold research all over the place. And the ideas are formulated together then. And these are the common theories, some mine, some out there that I don't agree with, but here they are for you to view. Now off you go and see if this makes sense to you and, and take it further. And I think that's the best way forward, a co cooperative in the sense that we're all sharing information. And when somebody comes up with something that's that's more verifiable, especially, but also perhaps a, a more valid theory for something, we can jump on that and say, OK, let's have a look at that one then. That sounds good. Yeah, I, I would encourage everyone to go make their own meaning out of whatever there is um, using people that you like and trust. Uh, if they seem sane to you, if they seem upright, go for it. You know, look into them if you choose. But I always bring it back to the evidence itself instead of the rumors swirling around the evidence. Yeah, because evidence should be objective. Um, I say it quite often. The truth can withstand the scrutiny, no matter how hard you look at it. Uh, which brings up, have you seen any new purported Bigfoot tracks over there in the UK? I saw one in Canuck Chase. I saw one that made the papers here from a researcher here uh, who's written a book, about a, a book I really like, by the way. I like it as a researcher. I just wasn't convinced by the track. Only one, you know, no context, no, I mean, it was in the paper, so maybe that's the lack of context, but only one with no context, and it was perfect. It was like a perfect footprint, so perfect. I, would, I just thought, I, I just can't accept this. It's, you know, this was, um, if this was the step of a, of a Bigfoot or whatever it might be, then it was, uh, it was perfectly placed in the best, most amenable material to make this perfect print you got. The problem here is people aren't carrying any material around to cast with them, often not even carrying a scalable object of any kind, or they don't include one in the photograph. They don't take photographs with context around, you know, from distance and, and showing a trackway or, or the surrounding area in which they found this evidence. And everything I've seen thus far up to this point either looks like it's been manufactured or it's these running shoes, you know, these barefoot running shoes that people have. That's what I've seen everywhere here. Now, it was an argument for a while. I made it slightly imbecilic. If the wood woes was more like a Neanderthal-like creature, perhaps, like the Almasti, if they were similar to that, then we would expect its footprint from what we know so far, or what we suspect to be more human-like in appearance, you know, albeit you know, larger and wider. And could that perhaps lead us to overlook some of these footprints that are out there? But I, I still haven't seen anything that even falls into that category. So I, sadly, I'm sort of, I'm a little bit negative on the British Bigfoot at the moment. I still have four or five key witnesses. I know personally, I believe wholeheartedly, absolutely, that they saw what they saw. But um, as as to evidence, I don't. I just don't think we have anything at all. Yeah, it's a kind of a tough sell to get them over there and and keep them there for so long. You know, two thousand years ago, sure, but nowadays it's kind of kind of a tough sell. Absolutely. I mean, this this space. If you get out into the the, the countryside here, this. I mean, I, I argued in the book, six point eight percent of the entire country is urban sprawl, including roads and rural settlements. Um, so there's within that there's there's room, but the landmass is maybe not that appropriate. Although if they were always here, you would assume they were um, adapted to this environment, not a North American style environment. 
And yet, I just can't, I just can't see it. And I had to concede that. And we did a documentary here, like a, a mini thing, not a really big thing, like a friend's documentary called Sticks and Stones, UK Bigfoot, about two years ago. And we basically went into like a really rural part of Scotland in Galloway Forest Park, 400 square miles, and just looked for all of these stick signs and stone signs that people kept reporting everywhere. Every single Bigfoot group over here I used to call them stick people at one point. There's just pictures of sticks and sticks and sticks. And unfortunately, if you go walking in the woods, what you're going to find is sticks. The woods are full of sticks all everywhere, all the time, falling to all kinds of funny positions and shapes. That's what happened. But we went into this damp, you know, one foot of moss, sodden uh, national park, Galloway Forest Park, beautiful animals and all kinds of things around. We did not find any sticks or stones or stick leans or stick piles in any of that beautiful pristine landscape we walked you know we really covered a lot of it my conclusion was it's because there's no people coming through here and people uh woodcrafters and um and uh wild campus and all the rest of it those are the people that are leaving these things behind and yet where all the ticks are and the midges come out and they're thousands every morning and i know you guys have been to that uh, similar parts of Scotland as well, where the midges just descend upon you, those biting flies. There were none of these stick signs. I thought to myself, it's because there's no people here, and there's the correlation. Now, at least in this part of the world, not to say they don't do it elsewhere. You talk about midges? Yes, yeah, midges. I know that you had a time with them, Bobo, when you were last here. Oh God, that, that was the worst. <laughs> yeah, there were some mosquitoes like that. Like I would rather deal with Alaskan mosquitoes than you know Scottish midges any day. Any day. Yeah, just clouds of these unseen things just biting and poking you and making you rashy. It's oh, it's a, the worst. The worst. Well, as they say that you know th- those weren't Scottish war cries. Those are those are cries from midges. <laughs> look, if you want to know how tough the Scots really are. Those guys were killed in that environment with no underwear. I mean, so they killed each other. They killed each other exactly. <laughs> oh, it, you know, this isn't exactly a beast, but one thing I always found interesting was how in Iceland and I think like Norway, they uh, the road builders would quit building roads or build around where there were supposed to be like uh, what elves. Yeah, elves. Yeah, or oh, hold the folk. The hold the folk. Do you look into that, or is that too like human? No, I did look into it. I actually, I took it out of the book. There was a whole section on little people that was supposed to be in there, and I just, I took it out because I thought it was too sort of supernatural in a way. But I, I loved, I loved the whole hold the folk thing. You know, they've got they got a tradition there in Iceland as well, where they kind of move the elves around you know during that time during the christmas time i think you guys have it too like elf of the shelf um but they they really really buy into it and a lot of people genuinely genuinely believe in these little people and they will they will literally there's a big road there's a project coming on there's there was some huge corporate company that wants to drill or go somewhere and there could just be a little rock outcropping in a way that the the icelanders think is is an elf house and then that's it you're finished you gotta go around it's mind-bending because i mean we have a hard time diverting pipelines and roads here because of endangered species or like an, an indigenous burial grounds 
and <laughs> they're doing that there because elves might live under that that rocky outcropping. Well, can you imagine that, you know, the, 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 one of the workmen coming to the foreman and saying, boss, I'm really sorry. We found elves. <laughs> <laughs> we found elves. We're going to have to go around. What can we do? And they're going to the investors. Look, we're really sorry. Well, we can't do anything about it. There's elves there. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> it's just one of those things. Ireland is the same. There's a lot of fairy belief. That's what I was going to bring up. I mean, our friend Bobo's last name, of course, is Faye. Yes, you're one of the Faye. We are. Wow, that's amazing to be one of the Faye. Yeah, yeah. So Bobo is an interdimensional uh, fairy-like creature in his own sort of way. And, you know, there's a lot of mythology around Bobo. I think we all, <laughs> all agree about that. I mean, we've all heard of rising from the dead. Right, rising. You can ride. You've been killed several times, uh, not only by disease but also accidents. Um, we've all heard various Bobo story times, and some of those are just like strain credibility, right? But like they're there. There, it's the truth. Um, you can check out some of these uh, documentations about these stories. Um, yeah, so the Bobo is proof, I guess. And wouldn't it be nice if they didn't um, build a road through your town because you live there, Bobs? <laughs> Unless you want a road, maybe you need a road. Yeah, um, to get out, exactly. Yeah. Like that reminds <laughs> me, Bobo, that thing about you being unkillable. It reminds me of that that line with Del the Roadie in Waynesville too, which he says which is the reason why Keith Richards cannot be killed by conventional weapons. And I think maybe you've got a bit of the Keith, you know <laughs> a bit of the Keith longevity in you there. I don't know, that guy's a whole other level. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There was a funny meme going around for a while actually, uh, which said we need to start thinking about the kind of world we're going to leave for Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Yeah, awesome. You know, there was there was one thing I wanted to say about the, the little people, actually, and that was I had a sort of look into the Duende, um, the Duende phenomenon in, in the past, and actually it really brought home to me some curious aspects of sort of a, almost like a Peter effect with colonization. And you can see this sometimes with things like the Pakwaji uh, and Bukwis and Pak of European folklore. So I wonder if there was a colonial cryptid footprint left on these nations that we conquered. So, you know, it's quite obvious to any objective observer that the Duende tradition and superstition is rooted in Europe, particularly in Spain and Portugal. And then it's dissemination throughout the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking countries in Central and South America, and even as far away as the Philippines. That's proof positive of the cultural and superstitious assimilation or, or melding of colonized populations of the folklore of their colonizers. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, well, in Central and South America, those traditions, they're thought to be a mix of European elven folktales and Indian trickster myths. So, you know... Is it more likely that the Indian trickster myths were replaced by Duende folklore and have over time taken on more of the character of their European replacements, only then in this era now to be fed back to the the descendants of the colonizer population as Indian folklore? And does that perhaps happen in North America as well with some of the things like the Pakwaji and other myths? It kind of brings up an interesting um, idea of um, a linguistic monster um, because there are some diseases that are linguistic diseases um, they're only present in the the folklore and culture of certain 
well, certain subcultures essentially. Like there, there's some, um, there's an Amazonian tribe. I, I forget the name. They, uh, they, they, there's a disease that only affects them, and you don't want to get it. And it happens if if you misbehave in this certain way. And but for them, it's 100% totally real. But outsiders coming into the community will not get it. It seems to be a, a linguistic disease. So it's not objectively real. It's culturally real for these people. And people get it and they die from it because they're, they're, that's their culture. They believe it. That's, what is, that's what's going on. It, it, you know? um, and a lot of things um, in our world can be kind of viewed as that. Perhaps even um, you know, demonic possessions or exorcisms. Those are linguistic ideas, right? Um, and maybe, maybe there's such thing as linguistic monsters um, in a way, in a similar manner. Whether they're physical realities or not, it kind of even doesn't matter. Because if you believe it and you spread the news and other people believe it, then suddenly it's as real as it's going to be unless you, one comes up and knocks you in the head. That's a great summary of our belief. And that actually really summarizes a lot of the cryptid world. It's very real to us to the point that sometimes we have to think of something like the dogman to knock us, to, to, to remind us of how um, much of an ask it is for us to ask anybody else to believe in Bigfoot or, or Nessie or something like that. To them, that's a dogman principle. You know, how could it be? There is no possibility. It's not conceivable. And yet something like the dogman, maybe for Bigfoot folk uh, like us, that puts us back into that position of the unbeliever, the incredulous onlooker, wondering why these people are accepting such marvelous, um, you know, monstrous manifestations. Oh, the irony. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, so Andy, a new book is out, I guess, Beasts of the World. Um, I'm looking at it on Amazon on my screen right now, so it is available on Amazon at least. But where else can they get it, and what else do you want to draw people's attention to? Well, you can get Beasts of the World on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. In all online bookshops, it's available in paperback as an ebook, and also now especially as an audiobook. Great narrator, Jonathan Rufus Welsh. Nice English accent. Uh, uh, my review of him was, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, I really couldn't. Uh, so that's where you can get it. You can also go to hangeronepublishing.com. I have lots of discounts on the books and that sort of, I think, uh, you know, uh, spread the payment and all that kind of stuff is on there as well for people who want to do things a bit differently. And find me on facebook.com forward slash bizarre. All of my stuff is there and all the other main platforms where you would, uh, you would seek to find me. If you have a sighting, if you want to talk about anything cryptozoology related, you can message me on my Facebook and I'm, I'm very happy to talk to you. I'm always happy to chat. And we are very happy to talk to you today too, Andy. Thank you so much for coming back on Bigfoot and Beyond. Yeah, thanks, Andy. We appreciate you coming on, brother. Thank you, Bobo. Thanks, Cliff. All right, talk to you soon. Toodaloo. It was nice to have Andy back on. I mean, talk about someone soothing to speak to. Dude, it's like, I forget what they call it, ASMs or something. There's a whole category on the internet where people go on and just listen to soothing voices. Yeah, I always say, I, when I see that, I always think uh, ABSMs, Abominable Snowmen, you know, but um, that's just because of the world I live in. Right. No, that's, I, I can't wait. To, he's, I mean, he's got his work cut out for him to cover the whole world's cryptids. Well, seven books, that should do it, right?
Maybe. And you know, while we were talking to him, I literally went on, I pushed mute for a minute and, um, and I went on and I ordered his book. Um, I'm looking at it right now. You can get the paperbacks, 21 bucks, um, Kindles, 10 bucks. So that should uh, get a bunch of sales over there. But I like having a book in my hands. I'm one of these old fashioned guys. I like the smell of a book. I like flipping the pages. I like making notes. That's kind of my gig. I got, I got the book when it first, I, I got it the week it came out, but I've, I think I only read like one and a half chapters of it. Well, yeah, it's coming my way, so I'll try to get into this in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, but that, that that was fun. Yeah, I like listening to him. He's a soothing voice. Reminds me of like a he's like a British uh, um, Lyle Blackburn. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> cool beans. All right, Cliff. Well, we got some other good guests coming up here in the next few weeks. We've been talking to some people, so I'm excited about that. And I know you got some stuff. Well, you're not going anywhere for a while, right? I'm home for a while. Thank goodness. When's your next appearance? Uh, it's going to be in Pocatello, Idaho, like the weekend of what, the 22nd or 23rd or 24th, whatever that weekend there is, September 23rd ish. Oh, you're home for a long time. Yeah, I'm home for a while. I'm home for a while. I've got this and that to do locally, of course, but uh, my next big appearance is going to be in Pocatello. It's going to be Dr. Jeff Meldrum and I appearing out there. Rumor has it Mark Marcel might be out there. There's a handful of other people that are going to be uh, making an appearance. Um, and if you want tickets, you can go to sasquatchprints.com. By the way, Speaking of SasquatchPrints.com, that is also where you can go to buy Bigfoot and Beyond t-shirts and hoodies. So, um, I mean, you, we look amazing. You should see us right now. I'm sure we're all wearing it. In fact, I'm only wearing a t-shirt right now. So don't picture that in your mind. But um, yeah, you can go to SasquatchPrints.com and go get your own Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo t-shirts and hoodies. And while you're there, pick up a ticket and come say hi to me in Pocatello. And yeah, folks, too, if, if you have a sighting or a story you want to tell us, whether it's uh, Bigfoot or beyond, Dogman, UFOs, orbs, whatever it may be, but if we're always really interested in Sasquatch Bigfoot stories, drop us a line at uh, BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com and make a report and we'll uh, check you out. And one final little plug for ourselves, if you would like to hear your voice on the air asking us a question for our monthly Q&A episode, you can go to BigfootAndBeyondPodcast.com. Go up to the contact button, and then you can actually leave a voicemail for us that we might play on the air and answer your question, no matter how ludicrous your question may be. In fact, the crazier your question is, probably the higher probability of getting on the air because we enjoy those sort of wacky questions. And serious ones. And serious ones. But let us have it. I dare you. Yeah. Okay, folks. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much. Thanks for Andy from Beasts of Britain over there in the UK. And so until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 